everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest today in Jose Catano. He's going to talk about his journey as, you know, an athlete, as a coach, but then also coming to the United States and building what is arguably one of the top performance facilities here in the Northeast. So without further ado, Jose, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you guys for the invite. I mean, I'm really, really happy to be part of this group and then thank you for the invite to get, to get me here. Yeah. And, and today, you know, we're going to talk about my two favorite things. And for people who don't know, it's strength and conditioning and the, the beautiful country of Colombia. Um, I, think, I think your story um, is unique, but also uh, is a major driver of why you've been so successful, um, not only in your business practice, but then also to in building the relationships with your athletes and helping them get to the next level. So if you could just kind of walk us through kind of your journey as an athlete and, and that moment that you got bit by the iron bug where you said, wow, this training's pretty cool. And not only do I have to build a career, you actually, you know, came to the United States um, from a, from a country that, you know, many people don't know about and they don't know that culture and they don't know how that culture can actually be pretty helpful, um, in building the kind of community that you've built here at your facility. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, um, yeah, um, I'm from Girardota. So it's like a town, like 30 minutes from Medellin, Colombia. So, um, me growing up, um, I always been, um, an athlete. My main sport is BMX racing. Here in the U.S. was big in the 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s, but I mean, it, it's not football, it's not baseball, so it's very overseen, you know, like not a lot of people know about it. But in Colombia, it was a main sport. I grew up racing from like 10 years old, all the way uh, right before I came here. And then I got to school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be in some sport. I like the, you know, the ambient of of like like athletics so in colombia it was either it's not like here which is so good about these countries the opportunities that people have to do different sports in colombia in my high school i had soccer and i had track that's it there was nothing in between uh most of i went to a private school so all the kids there more likely were soccer players i think i was the only kid there were five kids in the entire school who did bmx racing competitively so other than that everybody played soccer so at one point, my my scoring, my grades for fifth ed was me going to BMX races because I was. And then after that, I had an injury in like 2000, I got maybe 2003 uh, ACL injury on a crash. So then I could not touch a field after that because I was now um, racing for nationals. I was a national ranked. I, I had a few international podiums. And then regional titles as well. So it was like, I was more, I was serious about it. So uh, I couldn't mess with that. And then my mom had moved to this country when I was in sixth grade and I wasn't able to see her until I graduated from high school. So part of that, I have like plan A, I go to the US, you know, if my mom can legalize her status or plan B, I stay in Colombia, continue my BMX career and go to university and do some athletic stuff. I think it was like sport management they had. So that's kind of uh, what led to be here. My mom legalized her her situation. I was able to see her after like six years and then came to the U.S., but I came to Boston. So Boston and BMX, I wanted to also continue BMX here in the U.S. That, that was my dream. I was like, I came to the biggest storm in January. I'm like, this is not it. <laughs> so it's like, this is not it. And then I had just to figure out, you know, being an immigrant in a new country, and I just had to figure out life. Yeah. We, we talk about strength and conditioning has a pretty set path in the United States. Usually you go to college, 
you get an undergraduate degree, we have the NSCA certification, and then maybe you do an internship or a mentorship, um, and then you follow up with a master's program. I know that in Colombia, it's different. So the hierarchy and structures of the universities are different. And also, too, as you mentioned, the club structures of soccer. Um, uh, to another everything was clubs. Everything is clubs. Could, could you it's explain Columbia. that to people? Because I think they sometimes we don't understand our clubs the way that we think of it um, in our system versus down there is a lot different, especially as it related to soccer, because I think, again, it's a very unique situation in Latin America. Yeah, so pretty much, I mean, the, the way that it was in Colombia is like, um, like Colombia will have um, at least I can talk only at least for my for my school. Um, they will have I don't even know if I had basketball to be honest with you. I don't think people will play basketball for my school. So pretty much, if you want to be in athletics, which I don't even know how I graduated from high school to to put it first of all. So I'm gonna tell you first. First, schools. For my my senior year, I was seeing twenty one subjects per week. Put that into perspective. Here in the U.S., you graduate with about twenty-one subjects from from let's say ninth grade to twelfth grade. I was seeing I was seeing that in eleventh. You were we only have eleven years over there of high school. Also, uh, I had eleven subjects per week, and as soon as three o'clock hit, everybody goes into their club. So if you like soccer, if you like volleyball, track and field, basketball, so all the sports school here in the U.S. will provide. They have to be paid or sponsor or they this uh you know national level team or club that's where you play for and that's how you will compete sometimes they had intercollegiate i think or collegiate uh, like tournaments kind of like you know this town playing against that town they will have for certain sports but soccer was the main one they will have for bmx was a big one too but i can't even remember my friends any of my friends playing basketball that didn't play club so that's the number one thing. So it was Monday to Friday, you know, three to seven, three to eight, kind of like it is here, but there's not high school tournaments or teams. Yeah. And I think when we think about our sports, we have towns and cities that don't have pro professional teams. So the yeah. college can be the focal point. Um, but for listeners who don't know, and I got to ask you this question, Medellin or Nacional, like the two different soccer programs down there. This is a rivalry of uh, the Red Sox and the Yankees on steroids. But it's like 10 times 10. It's like, yeah, but like, people don't understand. I mean, like when it comes to soccer fans, it's like, it's insane. I mean, soccer is one of the biggest sports in the world. Uh, and But they take it too hard, you know? They take, to take it hard. Also, there's not many options to do. You know what I mean? Soccer is the cheapest sport that you can play. You know, my friends used to play in uh, – in a dirt field with on shoes or not shoes, which is why the why the most uh, the most developed athletes now in the league come from these third world countries because now that I learned that is um, the the ability to be on different scenarios. You know, like you play soccer, yes, but you play soccer on field. You play, you sorry, you play soccer on grass. You're playing soccer on mud. You're playing. Uh, on an even surface that's development right there you know like that's the that's the first uh, uh like the like the sports like specifics but then you're doing it on different surfaces once you start working with different surfaces the interaction with the ground becomes different you uh, you start to learn different deceleration techniques uh footwork skills uh jumping running acceleration that's what gets you to the next level that's why like early specialization is bad but what they don't realize for for some of these athletes, they started playing on very harsh conditions. So by the time they came to the league, 
were perfect ground, perfect ball, you know what I mean? With rules. And like, I remember my friends, we used to play in high school. There were no rules. It was concrete, uneven concrete, one goal, one goal, 20 against 20. And if you got megged, you're out. You know, like that was a but part of that is like, they have like the development programs that they will have here. Other, a big one called, uh, we have a universities, but we don't have dorms. Like uh, as far as I know, there's no dorms. Um, we don't have, I didn't, I never heard of college athletics. You know, so it's like you go to college, but after that you go to club. You know, so it's like down like that. Like the only people that will commute to the school, like leave, will be people from other states. They will come get an apartment and then they will go to school. So in Medellin, there might be what, 30 universities? I don't even know. Just because it's very like you stay home, you commute, you go to the club. Um, people don't work as well. That's a good, a huge one. Like I started to work when I came to this country. So that's that. That's the part that um that that is so different. And when you said that, what got me into this industry was the environment. You know, that was number one. The ways I was raised as an athlete, and when I started working here, I didn't. Uh, when I started working here, thank God I never worked in the industry of sales. You know, not a. I mean, everybody comes here, McDonald's, Market Basket, like all these. Uh, you know, like a a retail store. I started here volunteering with this school district and I started working at the YMCA. And then after like seeing all that, it's like, I like this environment. I didn't even know I was working with kids and I'm actually amazing. And that led me to, to like being more, okay, I want to work with kids. I want to work with these groups. I want to be athletic. I want to do this. What can I do? So then I started going into education and, but I also liked athletics. So I was like, okay, maybe I do both. So I started doing a special ed. Uh, because now I got a position for the school district and I was working on a program for autism and, autism and Asperger's, but then I also want to keep the athleticism. And then after two years, I started working into BMX. So now I started now competing national rank for BMX, a few sponsors, and that led to the next level as well. So you bring up a great point there. And throughout our journey, when we're learning the science, there's very hard sciences but the point that you brought up right there about there's also an emotional side. There's a commitment, a passion. When you coach, you have to do it with passion and you have to build relationships. And often, you know, we'll talk to people in a time of data, data, dashboards, analytics. I think sometimes the personal element gets forgotten. How much do you think that helped or hurt you doing this non-traditional path of where you didn't know the American structure, you didn't college university structures, um, were kind of foreign, but then when you came here and you got to see it from your own perspective, but still taking that kind of club mentality, serious clubs, um, to your training practice, how much do you think that impacted you? No, I mean, it, it was um, it was huge. I was like, to be honest with you, when I started working into the industry, I was like, I can really truly say I was teaching and coaching with rocks and sticks. You know, like that's that's how raw I had it. Um, the good thing, for example, that helped me is my personality. You know, like I'm very chill, get my pro point across. And also part of the psychology of me working as a behavior specialist, working with kids, uh, started with autism and Asperger's, now to working with kids with uh, PTSD, ODD, ADD, ADHD, you know, all the letters in the alpha, you can label uh, a condition like I worked with. So that also 
allowed me that. I think that's why like I, I brought the behavior specialist, you know, the behavior aspect of human development into coaching. How do you talk to your athletes? How do you want arousal to be? How you want to get your point across? Um, that, that communication part, which I think is very unique and one of a kind on how do you want a program to be and the expectations that you get from an athlete on the behavior side. And also because I had this background of what people you know, if you have PTSD, there are certain things that you have to go through. If you have ADHD, there are certain things, the way that you got to manipulate the information or the way that you present it to an athlete. If you have an athlete with, um, and that's, that happens a lot, is ODD, oppositional defined disorder. That has no cure, but there's a way to manage it. So these are like more likely the athletes that are very stubborn. And if you say it's white, I'm going to say it's, it's gray. You know what I mean? Or like, like, that that's one of the part what these are these would be considered the bad athletes in a way you know because they're not coachable well could you just i think that's worth explaining a little bit more because i know you covered a lot there walk through yeah. that again that that structure and framework because what you just said we see this often and i i know exactly what you're talking about in our practice where let's just call it resistance um and yeah. whether it's to the authority to the data to the information walk through again that kind of profile but then walk us step by step through and I'll just say, uh, say you're working with a basketball team, you're working with a, a player, and now you're going to talk to them. Can you walk us through your thought process as you're going to talk to them, whether it's about their training data or just call it player development? Walk us yeah. through that step again. Yeah, so well, when I get an athlete, the first thing is like get to know them. What do you do? How, uh, you know, how's school? Um, uh, what do you do? You know, how's, how's your program? Where do you come from? But then also start picking up on social cues. You know how they interact with me. That's number one. How they interact with me. What kind of program they're in the school. You know, because sometimes that gets overseen. You know, it's like they think that the kid might be just on a regular program as an athlete, but he might end up that he's not. You know, he might end up that he's on a on on a program where he's getting extra help for math. He's getting. He might be getting counseling. He might be on on a different program. Um, that they're not even in school or they're homeschool, you know? So like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff are going to play from that. And then you start seeing the personality. And from there you can see um, how you, how the person is more coachable. Another thing that sometimes um, since the few, com few things will come up is like, if the parents want to share it, they might be on an IP, they might be on a one or five or four, you know, so sometimes those things will come up and then you can better, better assess, especially for the younger guys. Um, you can better assess like, okay, if that person or if they hey, have medication for ADD, ADHD, that happens a lot. Sometimes they will share that with me. So now it's like, okay, I know this kid is going to be all over the place. Instruction has to be very simple. They're going to get lost on instruction. So I had to, I had to be very like thorough, very simple with my, with my coaching, which, at first, I wanted to be over coaching. It's like, do this, do this, do that, do that, do that, do that. No, no, no. Like, your hand has to be here. Your finger has to be there. Like, you know, like, give that value. For, at first, I thought as a coach, the more uh, feedback I provided, the more I was coaching. And after that, you know, live and learn. I'm like, you know what? They're young. They're getting it. I'm going to give the cue. One to two cues. Now, now I have, I give a cue, two to three reps. Then, then I give another one. Then, then I give another one. And then allow them to like, they're not going to get hurt if, if, if they're learning how to do a movement with whatever it is, whether it's with weight, no weight. I just let it happen and then they're going to get it. Not only that, now I'm saving more energy 
but also they're gonna be able to have you know make a mistake repeat make a mistake okay i got it and then we progress that yeah i think a lot of coaches make the mistake early on of trying to show their intelligence by over coaching and yes what and that was i was that i mean i uh, hands hands up i was that guy i was that guy that i took my personal training i'm like okay like let me see like okay you're good no now i'm like hey this is what you have to do not only that my english is hard you know like at first like sometimes my kids don't even understand me if i go to colombia i come even with a thicker accent if i ne i'm nervous accent goes up so then i had to be like okay how can a coach not talking a lot so I, I was very uh, physical as with my motions, like, you know, he, if you're going to hinge, I will just show them. I won't even talk, do this. Yeah. You know, it was like because of the other part too, is like uh, from human development, the younger that you are, the less cues you can be able to perceive. So uh, during the development, we're animals, you know? So when we're learning, we're learning by watching. Kids learn by watching. You cannot tell a kid, do this. You got to show them. So then part of like of that development is first this, then that singles, simple steps, and then that will get it a little bit better. And for kids, I don't even correct their form too much when it's bounding. I was like, this is what I want you guys to do. Go try it. Unless I see like, okay, he's going to get hurt if he's going to keep doing it. You know, we regress it. But other than that, I allow, I allow them. They're resilient. They're learning. And part of that, they don't have the motor skills just yet developed for these movement patterns. I move it, scale it back, and then now after two a second session, boom, they get it, you know. So that's the one thing that I, I also and also the, the most important part that I talk about is, and then I ask, who do you live with? You know, very simple question, but that can give you a huge idea what the environment of this athlete might be. They, because once they might be because sports is their passion, parents are supportive, or two, it could be that sports is escape. So then also if sports is the escape, you can talk about, you know, you live with mom, we live, you live with dad, you know, they're divorced, you know, you get to like, you don't get and open a book and you start asking these questions, but that's how you like, how you get to know the person. And like, that's like, sometimes even for my program, I had to get a tea time. So we created like a little tea time. And then I say, hey guys, you guys have any tea? It's like, oh my God, Jose is like, okay, hold it, get lifting. And coming, sometimes that comes come furious. It's like one time I had to snap at one of my athletes because they came in hot about some drama that had happened. It's like, hey, that's not how you're coming here. You're not coming here and swearing. You're disturbing the atmosphere of the group. You're going to have to hold it. But I know, but it's like, hey, this is not, I know what you're going through. Can't do that. You know, this is this is not, there's a parent in here. They don't know you. You know, like you, you look like a bad kid right now because of the way you're coming in. You're coming in swearing. That, that's not what we're doing here. Hold it. Do your program. We'll talk at the end. That ended up being an hour and a half chat at the end of the session. So that's something we're developing in, is that if they don't feel uh, safe talking to the parents, talk to me, then I can maybe help you deliver that message back home on a way that maybe your parents might take it better, whether it's a good or bad news, or how to communicate the situation. You know, So that's something that we do at our facility is really getting to know the athlete which is why when I developed my program, it was more on a small group setting because I was able to help him. If you have 30 athletes, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're never going to get to 30 people knowing exactly who they are. And that's what I do. I did the opposite. I individualized my training. Um, we do part of like the technology that we use got us to that, but also we individualize the athlete personally too. We get to know them on that, at that level. 
Yeah, I think often people forget the the taking the time. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had in the private sector and at the college level where people just open up and you're that sanctuary, you're that resource, you're that sounding board, and how important those column lifts or those experiences can really shape them. Because as you bring up, you don't know whether they had a good upbringing or a tough one or, if, you know, a different oh, country yeah. or what the family situation is. And I think the best coaches I've ever seen, and, and I, I go down the line of people that I've known personally or even just professionally, you, you know, you've heard about through circles, there's an incredible relationship that then has training. The training yeah, is the no, important part. That's 100%. Like, it, it goes to a point that is happening, like, not long ago. Um starting the coaching coaching lifestyle you know but sorry like college and then we start talking about life one time we just sat down we literally meet session everybody was doing cleans back squat sprinting i was talking to this girl the other guy came in and like oh what are you talking about then we ended up like having five people just listening and i'm like you know what screw this session um i think you know and but a part of that for example for me um i don't drink i don't smoke like I don't, I haven't done. I don't know what is being drunk. So that also that part for kids is mind blowing. You know, it's like how did you do it? You know, I do. You know, kind of like faking until you make it kind of thing. Like giving them advice on what, how did I make it through without segregating myself and isolating myself? Because I tell them, guys, I went out, I hung out. You know, college is an experience as well. But I stood my ground. You know, giving them advice, and they were like, oh wow, I didn't know it was possible. Some of the kids like I didn't know you could do it. It's like well. It can be done, but you need like a strong will in order to do that. All my choices of why I decided not to do it. So it it it, pay, it pay, is a big aspect and on my program for sure. Yeah, and, and for a lot of times you might run into a situation depending on the community you're in. No one's ever told this individual to be great. No one's ever told this you know you know person that they should go to college that they should you know push harder or this that. And it's interesting because people tend to rise up to their expectations. But often early on, they're not sure if it's okay to be great. They're not sure yeah. how to go about doing it. And then where do I go if I have help or if I have a bad day? And that's where training, you're going to have a bad lift. It happens. You're going to yeah. have a bad rep. And we talked earlier on another podcast, maybe that's probably the bigger lesson in sport is how do you handle adversity and failure? How do you work together in a team? Because you're not, most likely you're not going to go professional. But so many life lessons, you know, as a man or as a woman can be really brought out in the training environment where we're setting them up to have success, but also push that limit. Oh, uh, yeah. So, of course, that's number one. So the one thing that I, I try to set on my program is that the arousal of performance, like trying to be very mellow. I don't like to be like barking at the kids, you know, like because for one, I can be their cheerleaders when they're on the field. You know what I mean? So um, a lot is also it's time consuming. I don't know, like I, I give props to the coaches that are, you know, out there yelling in people's faces for 10 sessions a day. I can't do it. You know, it's not uh, like uh, props to those guys, but like that's not my personality. Also, the part of that meme from uh, behavior background, I don't need to be yelling at someone's faces to encourage them because I don't know what the background of them is at home. That's a huge one, too, you know, because it's like if they come from a, like violence at home and I'm here like barking at him, like yelling at him to get done. Like, yes, he looks cool. Like, wow, that coach is encouraging. But how is a person taking that? Is that an encouragement? Is that intimidation? Is that you setting up your alpha, like in the weight room as a coach? And then like, and that, it's hard. It's really hard to uh, to work into. Everybody has their own stories, depending on the sport that they play. That's the other part too. Me coming from a background where I only know BMX, 
but I had great coaches for BMX and the guy was like that, you know, very good. He barely rose his voice. So I learned that, you know what I mean? I, I copied the behavior aspect, but the training aspect, that's what I made in my own, kind of like me coaching right now. My coach for BMX in the US, is his name is Tony Hoffman. He was a BMX racer, but this guy had the craziest connections in the world. Um, uh, Carvalli was a good mentor of him. He actually was training with uh, Carmichael Industries, which are huge in the industry for uh, the Tour de France. Uh, they train uh, arms, um, Lance Armstrong. Um, from there, we actually started working on velocity-based training. So we, me as an athlete, was working on velocity-based training since 2011, no, 2008. That was a while ago. You know, I was like 20 years old uh, working with WBT. He was able to get a connection with the guys that push uh, the push bands. And we actually, uh, some of our athletes, uh, part of this group, we were actually some of the uh, testing some of the prototypes and and testing the glitches and and all this stuff. From there, we moved into Gymaware. So using Gymaware power meters for bicycles through SRAM, um, like a cycling. Uh, so technology was at the at the pinnacle of how I developed my program. So now going more into like how we train. Yeah, I I think that what's interesting about you is that yes, you use technology and we're going to get into that to your practice, which is cutting edge, but there is this underlying foundation, which you talk about it so easily. And so, you know, matter of fact, but I think a lot of young coaches forget that because throughout their time as their development, well, I, it's my coach, my program, but you spent, you know, the first half hour here kind of talking about, you know, your athletes. And I think that one thing everyone uh, needs to keep in mind is you're in the service industry. You're yeah. here to serve. You're here to help. And that doesn't mean a doormat. That doesn't mean that you should, you know, if a sport coach or if an athlete comes in, you know, and they have an attitude and not pro acting proper, you should just take it. Um, but you should also set up an environment, a culture where people want to come to you to be the best version of themselves. And it's it sounds easy, but it's hard in practice to do day in and day out. But it sounds like, you know, you mentioned VBT kind of as you move forward, can you walk through that, how you use it? Because I know, again, people talk about it being new. Um, but like you said, you've been doing it for a while. And if yeah. you back to the old coaches, they used rattle plates to be able to hear the plates, you know, at about a meter per second, the plates, you know, would rattle. So this isn't a new concept, even though it might be um, new in the, in the social media aspects of people talking about it. Could you tell everyone how you used it and then kind of where you see it going? Yeah, so pretty much, I mean, the way that we used it, I mean, back in the day, like when I was training for BMX, it was one of the agreements that I had to do in order to train with this coach is, was like, hey, if you want to work with me, uh, you got to get this system. So it's like, uh, Gmoware was like three grand, like you give me a whole bunch of different prices and then the push band was like $200, you know, and then we got the first version hooked up for like 80 bucks, 100 bucks, something like that. And then in order to provide the data for them. But then part of that, that was the auto regulation was huge because now we weren't, I wasn't, I was a big meathead because in those two years that I stopped as an athlete, I got big. I was like <laughs> the guy of like bench pressing 300, um, like, uh, you know, like re regular average meathead, 400 squat, 500 deadlifts and stuff like that. But then part of that is like, okay, let's go back into an athlete. So the deal with this, with the coach was that I had to get devices for tracking because that's the only way he was going to know that it was going to get better. But also the other part of that is the auto regulation and then CNX taxing. 
So that was huge because um, the way that he was training, uh, loads could be very heavy. So we had to get uh, on a deload. So we will be like three, three on, one off, you know, four on, one off, uh, stuff like that. But it, it, it made me realize how much and how overtrained some athletes can be because what happens, number one, overtraining is a, is a very sensitive subject, very hard to catch back then. Now is much easier to do. But the part two that I learned is that we're now, we were, how do you call it? We were blaming outside sources for our condition, but not necessarily what we were doing. So for example, for me, it was huge that every three to four weeks, I started to get a mild cold. I will go up the stairs, um, up the stairs, uh, two floors, I was gassed. My legs, I will like be standing, my legs were throbbing. So now when I started talking to the coach, like, this is how I'm feeling. He's like, hey, listen, watch out because your CNS is taxed. You know, you're like, now you got into the CNS, you're taxed. I will go to races. And then we were like, sometimes like, you know, like uh, a one, two, three priority on the list. We are like number three priority is the worst, like a regional, national, stuff like that. And I'll go to races. Day one, killed it by miles, leg speed, top notch. And I was amazing. I did really well that race. Next day, that was the like, okay, this is it. This is what overtraining is. Then the next day, I got hit by a train. I couldn't get up on my bed. My whole body was like hurting. I couldn't warm up properly. So I was like, okay, so this is what our training is. I call my coach. It's like, okay, take a week off. You're done. Uh, we got to reevaluate where you're at and go. We do like a readiness assessment too, like with CMJ, just to see where we will be at. So then after that, kind of what it got me into now coaching, I was doing personal training on the side as well for the YMCA, yeah. Yeah, I just want a quick question on that because you, you covered so much there. The, um, off, the, off the VBT, you talk about CNS taxing. I want you to explain to me, kind of say I was a young coach and I was in an internship with you and I have an athlete, you say, go run VBT. Can you kind of explain to me what protocol or what approach you would use the VBT to find that CNS taxing? And then after that, you just mentioned the using the vertical jump height um, as part of your readiness. Could you explain that as well? But I want to almost at a manual level. So someone who's hearing, yeah, I know VBT. Well, yeah. okay. But what protocol would you run? How would you use that? Yeah. So the way, uh, the way I will do it back then compared to what we're doing. So what we do it back then for like my readiness test was, um, I had to get the same protocol for warm up. you know, so it had to be consistently the same. So I had to be on the bike for five minutes. I will do foam rolling quads, you know, the regular foam rolling routine. Um, I will do, I'm trying to think, I will do, I will, I will get on the push, uh, I will attach it, and I will have to do um, the average high of three CMJs. I think it was, yeah, I think it was three. I can't remember right now, but it was three CMJs. That, the number that I got for my height, I will have to compare it to the average of my heights on per session. So if it was anything above 15 deficit, like 15% deficit, then that will be a red flag. And that's on height, correct? And yeah. that will be on height. We were keeping it super simple. So we were doing it based off height. Okay. Like we, um, sometimes we use power. Uh, and then after that, later on, we started, a, instead of looking for height, we learned a little bit better. And then we started doing power. So the average peak power uh, of the three jumps. And that this, will be. This was off push or was this off a of vertex? No, that was, that was a push. 
Yeah. Everything was with push. So yeah, because sometimes with push, we learn that the height could be deceiving. You know, depending on where you where you were it, because that's part of like the biggest problem that we had with it. Is like every like if there was not a, not a protocol, how to put it, how to hold it. Like so now we just did power and then the average peak power of the CMJs. And how often was that correct? And how often did your coach make a decision? Say, pretend I did that and I got to twelve percent, or I'm at ten percent. So I'm not quite but I'm getting there. How would your coach use that to then either prescribe the following workout or prescribe the recovery? Yeah. So pretty much uh, what we would do is if it was, um, if we did that, it was about 50, 20%, like 20% was really bad. And then depending on the day, if I came on the train in the morning, then that, for me, for example, if I had a morning session, my number was were bad. You know, I wasn't a morning person ever. I just started my first, nice session started about two years ago you know like lifting at 7 a.m my whole entire life my peak performance is 7 6 p.m like i could be pring after a 10-hour job no problem but then i go to bed so so it was like it was part of my cycle so then in the morning my numbers were bad mid-afternoon they were good uh but then anything about 10 percent, that's fine that's like just a you know how your day was did you do a lot of running did you do a lot of walking i'm a behavior specialist so sometimes i'm chasing kids uh sometimes i'm ex doing escorts for kids sometimes to the point that i'm i'm restraining like uh, you know not not a cool subject to talk about but in some incidents we had to do some restraint for kids that are not being safe. You know, they're they're uh, harming themselves. So like days like that, I know my numbers were gonna be awful. So I will have like at least an expectation. But you got, I wanna say back then, eighty percent accuracy. You know, like if it was fifteen and low, ten and low, I'll just let it be. Anything over twenty, I was like, okay, like I'm just gonna chill. I will cut the first thing that I will do. I will cut everything in half. So if I was doubting that I was fatigued, everything, because sometimes I couldn't get in touch with my coach. So just to be safe, I will cut my whole program in half. If I have back squats, four by four, two by two, you know, or four by two. So I'll cut the volume of the whole, um, not the loads, but the volume, you know, I will cut the sets in half. At least I know I'm working 50% of what I should be doing at this time. I like that as an easy way for coaches. It, it was simple. It was simple. And after realizing what our training was, I was able to pick up the flags. Right. You know? I, think, I think people realize the, the when people write a program and we joke about programs with a capital P, you know, Drew Hammond put it is that it's the yeah. knowing all program. And if it doesn't work, it's because the athlete didn't do it right. But just yeah. like you said That's that. Good. Athletes yep. have lives, athletes have jobs, people have these backgrounds. And I've asked, and, and even for us in a college environment, which is pretty controlled, if you have a hundred players, it's all over control. the place. Yeah, you, don't, you don't know. So if you don't have a backup plan, just like an emergency room, here's the main medication of squats, here's the backup of maybe a belt squat, and then mm -hmm. here's just a recovery and we're gonna talk and chill. But if you don't have multiple options and you're just gonna, everybody gets the same, especially now, we have enough technology and enough information to know that's not the best course. Yeah, and no, not only that, the best part, and this is actually, that was the best auto regulation that I had in order to avoid overtraining because, well, and I actually forgot that part, is that I didn't, sometimes I didn't even have to do the the testing because if we're using velocity-based training, we're no longer using percentages. We're using velocities. So the thing is, 
regardless of what my state physical of mine is, if I'm working on a 0.65 meters per second average for my left, on a hot day, I'm doing 200 pounds. On a bad day, I'm doing uh, 180 pounds, you know? But that part, like, it's just the same. My CNS is just as prime to do 65, 0.65 at 200. Another station, 0.65 at 180. Just that part that you're now not controlling the load, you're not doing the velocity. That was like the best regulation I could do because I felt like crap. That's fine. I would just go do whatever, whatever I could do for that velocity. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people mention velocity based training for high speed and light. But to you just mentioned at 0.65 or we used it at the college, especially for female yeah. athletes. Yeah. You ask them three sets of five go and they say, is that and you'd ask them, is that heavy? Yeah. And you see like a meter per second. Well, that's yeah. heavy. So we said, instead of a percentage, we're going to add five pounds, add five pounds. Okay, you're going to now lift. And just like you said, you know, 0 0.6, 0 0.7. And you know, you can go down to plus or minus a little at 0.3 meters per second. That's yeah. really heavy. But at 0.5 to 0.7, you're in that kind of 80 percentile band. But if people don't know what heavy is, or again, to your point, it's a perception. Is, it's, yeah, it's the bad day. The they get to now learn. The thing is that lifting is a perception internal, you know, what feels heavy to me, depending on how I'm wired, might be light to you. So that's the other, that's why percentages are good. They work, get the job done, but the individualization part is hard because for example, like I said, if I'm working on 80% of my max, which I could move it about 50, 65, 50%, uh, sorry, 50, 60, to, 60 to 50 meters per second, but if I was restraining kids and escorting kids, now it was if I was doing 200, sometimes I'll come and do 150, and I was heavy. But because of the taxing, but it still got it got the job done. And then now what we do, what I what I did is that kind of what I lighten up the bulb is the first time I had an athlete. My first athlete, uh, his name is uh, Jake. He went to Babson um, for hockey. So I used to take care of him at the YMCA, like doing some coordinate, uh, co coordinator programs. And then his dad saw me training. He's like, I want you to teach my kid what you're doing right now for your training. I'm like, yeah, bring him through. And I'm like, oh, that's your son? He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, my God. I, I've been working with this kid since he was in middle school. Now he's in college. So I worked with him, you know, give him a few tips. Then um, it was like towards school. So then the next season he goes, Hey Jose, I want you to take care of my strength and conditioning program. You think you can do that? I was like, yeah, how much would you charge me? He's like, I don't know, like, I don't know, 20, $15 a session, you know, I have no idea. So I was like, I, and I was doing part of the personal training. So he couldn't about the personal training. Otherwise he was like, dude, you know what? Just give me 15 to $15. Cause he's fun working with you. And then I started utilizing velocity-based training with him and kind of the principles, same things that I was learning. And I'm like, oh my God, this kid blew up. Like it was insane. It got so bad that the coach had to ask him if he was taking steroids. And the kid was bullshit. I'm sorry my language, but about it. Because he's like, dude, how can someone ask me that so disrespectfully? Like, Jake, don't worry about it. It's like, that's such a, that is such a, like a reward for you. I can't come up with the word, but it's like, that somebody that has seen you over the whole school year stopped seeing you for four months and they had to go to the resource that you're on steroids. Imagine how much you have grown physically and performance-wise. That, that's the only thing that they could come up with. 
But what he's not, you know, what, what the coaches doesn't have into mind is like, well, he was training five times a week. He was working in construction Monday to Friday. Everybody who works at the team were in the, you know, at their beach houses down in Cape Cod. You were grinding every day. You were putting the work in efficient work. So, for example, the biggest one was cleans. He was doing four by six, you know, like big, 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 big reps. I was like, listen, cut everything in half four by twos, four by three with the clusters and that his but now he went up on everything. So that was the after that, after I saw his performance, like this is it. Cause that was my first official athlete that I ever had. Everything else was adult personal training because I didn't have the route of how to go to the athletics. Cause I didn't understand the system or how it works. I didn't even know that I could go to a college and be a coach for the for the university. Like that's how much of a mentorship I had part of like going to school that's so cool I, I i had a similar story in uh back in the day in newport where we had an individual same thing is 16 years old and training everything did everything perfectly the nutrition dialed in super excited and i'll never forget same thing he came back he got accused of steroids and the other funny part was that he uh he had to show id at the tournament because when he showed up because like in the picture he had in the picture yeah. they had on him, he was like 140 pounds and he rolled in. He had a growth spurt. He had, I forget how many inches he grew, but he was sitting at like 185 and rocked up. And <laughs> yeah. same thing. It's just, it's a testament to every little thing. I mean, he was, he was almost too much dialed in where he was weighing his food, didn't do anything but like eat, sleep, and train. And I yeah. just think it took it like to the point to extreme. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we dial it back. But again, to your thing is that it's very empowering to know that you can make such changes. And especially, you know, you talk to any any guy, we all wish we could go back to teenage years. And with the teenagers, they don't know that that is a time you are setting your genetics and your body up for life. And so yeah. commitment, you know, prior to the age of 18, when they're ready, um, when they, they get the, the, the bug, that they can go and make tremendous changes that last their entire life. So that's pretty cool. And, and you started with him, but now kind of, can you walk through with your practice, um, what you're doing now? Cause again, you mentioned VBT, you mentioned push. I know you use a ton of our plates, um, in your programming. Can you kind of give us an outline of kind of what the state of your program is now? Yeah. So like now 2022, um, uh, we've progressed of how we do our programming. Actually, um, now what we use, uh, with the force plates, now we utilize them for readiness. You know, uh, especially in season, and then uh, well, or if they come after practice, so now we're able to see where they're stand, um, whether it's the pogo jumps that we use, whether it's the CMJ, uh, we compare it based on the average, and then now what we've been able to do is con is the connection with minor body. So the biggest uh, per, uh biggest um improvement that we've done in that is that now we have kids coming in with drama with um, load now we're seeing it during like test weeks finals um the first thing that i do if they come in with drama stuff like that or if i see them that they're like low motivation is like hey, listen warm up get on the force plates do a counter movement jump let me know they come in they do that um 15 20 up to 30 percent i'm like oh my god i was like all right listen uh, go to your program let's do upper body let's do mobility call it quits um so then we do that all the times. So it's like, oh, okay. So I guess I was feeling that way. Sometimes they come with drama. They come to the same scenario. They come in, they got a PR. Like we're talking about 10, 15 PR of their average height. And I'm like, whoa, all right. Whatever you have going on, throw it out the window, go go grab. Sometimes during, if it's like more than 10%, 
I'll let him do like a three rep PR on trial bar. Usually trial bar is the safest. So it's like, go get a trial bar PR for three. Let's see if you can be your previous, you know, on a given day. Now they change that. Oh, I can lift heavy. Boom, goes out the window. Then what happened with that is now they start to get the mind to body connection as, okay, I feel like that, but not necessarily means this, you know? I was like, okay, I have a lot of stress going on, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to have a bad lifting session. And now I come kids of the, of the doors. Like, Jose, I want to get a PR. I'm ready. Like, I feel so strong. I get it. It's like, okay, calm down, dude. It's like, can I please lift? Can I do like bench press? Like any PR, any sort of back squat, that level, whatever it is. Cleans. And I'm like, okay, calm down. Go to the force plates. Let's see what we got. Man, 20, 30%. Yeah. So 20, 30% PRs. And then I'm like, okay, could, what do you want to lift today? I mean, do you have, you know, do you have an event of season? It's like, okay, go ahead. Go knock yourself out. Pick a lift three reps i don't do uh, maxes like one rep maxes um i do more like um i like to do cluster sets do as many clusters as you can for three reps and then after that we'll get a pr but then also done 10 sets you know so it's like if they can get a pr for three sometimes one one kid remember for trial bar he just took it very slowly he ended up doing 15 sets of three <laughs> until he got a pr and he did a pr of over 50 pounds from his previous one. So if you dial that up and you do a five, three, two, you know, what is a five, five, three, three, one, like this dude will be lifting like 200 pounds more. And that's good. Cause like, I like my guys to be consistently stronger, not one time strong. Cause I think that's, that's gold standard for me. It is. I don't care how much you lift, just move it as fast as you can every single time. And can you that to someone though, because that repeated strength in the bands and the motor recruitment area that you're talking about, I think you have to do it with caution. Your point there that you went slowly up is super important because we see often, whether it's three reps, one rep, don't care. If you overshoot that, it's a razor's edge of the overtraining. And what was a positive situation is could be negative, but you have a system here set up where you're gradually moving them through these different sets. How do you do that, say, again, uh, with someone who says that they feel really good and they feel great, but they have a, another event, say, in a, a week. Would you let them go for it or would you cap them? Yeah, so exactly. So for example, and that's why I say, where are you in in the program? Like, um, are we off-season, pre-season or in-season? So usually I do that during summer and off-season. Uh, and then if, the, I mean, the, the percentage has to be really, really high in order to tax it, the two, like, targeted so like say 15 20 percent above their average height so then i'll be if it's off season do as many sets as it takes you until you find your weight so i walk away i'm working with all the athletes hey where are you at like how many sets is that it's like i don't know i did like five warm-ups i'm like okay so load it up a little bit so sometimes they start too slow like they're start with 45s on one side they add 10 10 10 10 my rule is don't add more than 20 pounds at a time during those working sets. So that's the number one, uh, the, no, the number one thing. And then usually what I do, my gold one is five by three. You know, you got five sets, work up, you know, so it's like, oh, what do I start with? It's like, okay, let's go to the app. We use Team Builder, go to the app, look up for trap bar, see what you're lifting for those, you know, I start like go to your the data where it says, what loads you're lifting for five reps, make that, Make that your warm-ups. And then we start from there. Some other kids, they, they just can't find it. You know, like they after the five sets, like, Jose, I, can, I think I can do more. And then now I'm looking for form. I'm looking that there's no deterioration. If we do the, if we have the uh, the velocity-based training, any devices, then we'll put them on and then we keep them five by three as long 
as your threshold of speed doesn't drop too too much. So like um, let's say for trap bar, if it's about 30, now you're pushing it. You know, if you're about 40, now you're doing good. To 20s, you're that's a one rep max. So if they get to lift it like that, and if they do like a 20, they're doing three reps, they're more more likely some sort of for, your form is not really good. So then it's like, okay, form is off, you know, and that will be the only lower body program we will be doing that day and we'll move to something else but doesn't happen often yeah i think you know you mentioned earlier in the podcast about letting letting them go don't over coach them and i've, I've had people say similar things to me where aren't you afraid they're going to get hurt well in those unloaded times in those teaching times and that's really you have movements when it's a teaching phase where they're figuring it out and and an 80 20 rule right like it doesn't have to be perfect but they're not going to hurt themselves but you're letting them figure it out. But when you get into the events that you're talking about now, it's almost the opposite where they have good technique, but now they're just getting fatigued and form starts to go and they've been programmed not to quit. They're not necessarily going to bail out. And so as a young coach, sometimes in the moment you say, okay, good, one more set. And then when you get into that one more, but the knees yeah. are coming in, the back starting around. So that's the dichotomy of the teaching versus the maximal effort, but the individuals have spent months now learning the technique to get it to the point where they can do one of these heavy triples. And I think that's super yeah. important. And so that's the other time, I won't do that for, and that's the other part. Uh, I won't do this system for somebody who's been with me for a month. You know, like if I'm doing this with someone, I'm doing it with someone who's been for me for one year, two years, you know, like of consistently coming. Um, and so that's about it. Like uh, that's the other part, this is more like a, an incentive for uh, advanced athletes, not for a beginner program. You know, if I see, and this is the other part, if I see that someone is PRing on their jumps, are more likely to pull out the sprints, uh, the the timers, and we do sprints. So that that's that's if you're young, we go do uh, we go do sprints. If you're older, we could do a lift, or we could do both. Hey, let's 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 see if your timings are good. And the other part too, like part of like the assessments that we did with the force plates. Now we work with over twenty different sports. So now what we do is uh, we're able now to categorize athletes by sport, and then now we can see where the deficits are or what they need to work on. And that's now where we're we're now not only using BVT system, but we're also individualizing the training based on the sport that they play whether it's through the reactive components or the strength components as well. I was going to ask you, I love that idea of earning the opportunity to give a maximal effort with the younger kids, sprinting, jumping, uh, yep. older individuals, uh, major compound lifts. But I was also going to ask you, this summer I had a chance to work with a group of athletes, see them test on the plates. They got stronger. Their output outputs got higher. So they were jumping higher. They were um, getting stronger. But their strategies really changed. And, you know, most of my career has been kind of at the higher end high school, college level, but working with the middle school to younger high school population, what do you see for variation in strategies? And, and again, for those who don't know what we're talking about, you can check out on our blog, the ODS um, blog post, where we talk about these things of output, how high, how fast, but then the strategy really looking at, you know, okay, yes, you jump higher but your landing is now asymmetrical by 20% and super, super hard, heavy feet. Continuing to get that person to jump higher looks like you're doing better, but you're actually shortening the longevity. So we always have a longevity and then an output kind of XY um, 
paradigm that we have to keep in balance and the plates certainly do that. What have you seen on strategy changes on people that are changing in both their strength, but also just maturing in the high school level? No, so pretty much the number one thing that with all this system is self-awareness. Because the thing is that I could tell an individual how to do a million things, but it's never going to change because what I feel is not, like I said before, what I feel is not what you feel. So now being able to have the feedback of if you do this, this, this technique, you get this. When you land, stick landing, like you're, you're, you know, you don't go into a hinge. There's not a deceleration portion, soft landing per se. This is what it looks like, you know? So I also talk to the guys as well and the girls, everybody. I really make it, I break, I spend a lot of time breaking down what we're looking at because think, kids don't care, first of all, but they don't, sometimes they don't want to understand what they're looking at. They're just like, okay, it's good, it's bad. I do the opposite. I like to make sure that I explain exactly what my expectations are for all the data that we're looking at to the point that now I'm walking away. I let them, them I'm letting them manage the, the testing. But then now we're looking at very specific things when it comes with the strategy. So number one thing, if it's the landing, if it, the landing is bigger than the takeoff, uh, the net, uh, the 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 force that you apply to takeoff, now that's a very stiff landing. You know, so I just I make him look at listen. This is the peak where you push off. This is the peak where you landed. This is way too high. You know, think about it that there's kids in the first floor. You don't want to wake him up. How would you do that? You know, so something like that, because, again, it's unnecessary stress that we're putting. And then when I see kids doing that during testing day, like when they're first when they're new, first conversation that I said is like, hey, have you had any issues with your knees? You know, Oscars, I can say that word. Um, like, have you been diagnosed with this? Um, do you do you see yourself like having, you know, patella tendinopathy uh, of any is like, um, no, I'm not really other kids like, oh, yeah. Actually, right here hurts. And I'm like, that could be one of the, you know, they're very knee dominant. They're not hinging enough. Um, let the strategy change. But the number one thing is what I've seen for the younger ones with uh, with the kids is kids learn by doing, but feedback is number one. So positive reinforcement. So that's part of why the, the, the behavior comes into play for everything. People just don't realize it. So uh, reinforcement makes goes a long run so whether uh, you gotta make like uh, for for reinforcement you gotta pick the behavior that you want to desire and you gotta provide feedback that gets you there so sometimes you might be putting your energy on things that the athlete might develop into being scared of doing rather than courage of doing so whenever i see a jump i say do that jump fine then I look at it it's like, listen, if you do this, this, and that, I give him like for the, the what has worked for me is the breaking, the percentage of, of how the breaking to propulsive, the percentage that you spend on each phase. That has been golden for me. It might not work for other coaches, but that's how I modify the jump. So I was like, hey, listen, look, you're spending 40, 30% on the breaking, you're spending 40% on the propulsive. The breaking has to be at least half, should be at least half of the propulsive. So how do I do that? Drop quick, jump up, push off your toes. That's it. Like that's the that's the feedback that I did. Let's see what happens. Boom, they do it. Now the breaking rate of force development is twice as big. Now the percentages is like 25 to 35, or like we go from 30, 30, 30, or 30, 40 to like 25, 37. Now the take of velocity went up, height went up. 
So it's like, how did that feel like? He's like, yeah, that actually feel good. Another thing is what I do is like, listen, and I do that with everybody. It's like, I'm you, you're the ground. Don't go like this. Boom. That's what you do when you drop. And I'm like, oh, it's like, yeah, you're like, when you're falling, you're pushing away at the same time. And that's what the ground wants to feel when you do it. You're doing this and then you push. So now they get that. It's like, okay. And after that, then after they do a jump, the line is like, oh, that wasn't a good one. Result comes, it wasn't a good one. And that took three reps to put that mind to body connection. If I do this strategy, I feel this way, I get this outcome. So that's one, one of the number one things that we teach is how do you feel? Sometimes the kids don't even know, but because of we use these strategies and these numbers, now they know if I do this, my desired outcome is that, therefore it's a positive reinforcement. The biggest one, especially for sprinting is um, when you sprint and you're not timing it, you might get caught up as a coach, do one more rep, do one more rep, that doesn't look good. Sometimes when you actually athlete, hey, was that fast? Like, no, that, f- that felt like crap. I felt awful. If there's not a device that can tell you exactly what you got, then what happened is you do you do a sprint. And the first thing I ask, how did you feel? It's like, no, nah, that was awful. I felt that, that was not good. It was a PR. So what happened there, that's now the reinforcement of the of the outcome. So if I if I get a, a, a certain outcome and it's not a reinforcement, I'm now making a negative because it didn't look familiar to what I usually do. But what could happen is that you might have done certain mechanics change that allowed you to actually get a better rep or better time, but you didn't know, and now that became a negative. So now when they get a PR, and I know it's a PR, I ask them, how did you feel? 90% of the time, I know they tell me that it didn't feel good. I'm like, that's a PR. Careful how you think about it. I want you to replicate what you just felt. Boom, matching PR or like 2% lower. But that 2% lower is better than the average. So that, that, that's, that's how we play with it. And we don't do a lot of reps as well. I was going to ask you that, though, when we think about shaping of behaviors and Again, both from a personal training standpoint, I also, again, for hobbies, uh, work with uh, with dog and canine training. We do actually talk about that moment um, that there is a change in the strategy or change in the mechanic to reinforce that. And I think that with coaches, that might be a really important thing to point out of missing that opportunity to reinforce that. Um, you're actually slowing yourself down. So yes, the strategy felt different. That's what you felt. It didn't feel good or didn't perceive, you know, your perception is it didn't feel good, but in actuality, they've changed their strategy to get a better outcome. That's a really great point that if, you know, you're sitting there listening, are you spending time chasing feeling good or are you binding that feeling good? Um, it, to get that's outcome? the number one thing that I do. So the other part too, now that we do is that if we don't have a timing system, now we work with video analysis. So now we're working, okay, now we're working on sprinting mechanics. So it's very hard to know how you feel, <laughs> you know, when you're running 10, 15 miles per hour. So now we break down, um, we break down the uh, the videos and now we work into kilograms, slow-mo, frontside mechanics, you know, touchdown, um, touchdown, toe-off, you know, um, how, how do you look? And then we show it to the kids. Listen, this is what I'm trying to do, but look at what you're doing. And that's the number one. That's why video feedback is huge for any any program. If you don't have a velocity-based training, like you could see it, you know, it's like, oh, I look slow. 
like, yeah, he has to be faster than that. Or what like, program, oh, what program do you use for that? Just for people listening, because video used to be expensive. And I know there's a bunch of different apps. And then what is it? Kenovia or Kenovia um, has stuff. Uh, the ones that I'm, I've been playing around with are on form. It's actually come up pretty good. So on form is one which I think when you put coaches out on form comes up. At least that's what happened with me. So I use that. I think less. Les Feldman also used that one as well. Of used it in the past to communicate with the coach, with the athletes as well. So that one is pretty good. And then for kilograms, I used uh, I used the uh, the Runomatic, uh, the Runomatic app. Uh, that's actually been pretty good, very helpful. But if I'm on the go, slow mo, you know. Sometimes I use the kids. My phone right now. I need to get a new one. So it's like, hey guys, let me let me see your phone. Sometimes the wide lens, boom, get it on. Hey, listen, this is what I want you to do and let's see if we can make it happen so it's just simple i try to not to complicate it too much on that sense but if i want to really break it down um definitely run matic and and on form is the ones i use for that do you think that that is something that every practitioner needs to have in today's environment and and kind of going without it is a disadvantage or do you think there's some merit to kind of what you would call old school kind of just hands-on coaching without really tremendous amounts of feedback. So it, it's a balance. It's a balance because if there was, there is one thing that I've learned and what happens a lot is that people become a one, you know, like this come like a cult in a way. Like I only use this. I only use that. Uh, this is the uh, system that I use. This is how I train. But it's like it's a combination of everything, you know. But at first you become obsessed like, okay, I spent thousands of dollars on this. So I'm only going to use that. But it, it doesn't work that way. Like sometimes it happens days like, crap, I have force plates. I was like, <laughs> hey, guys, let's use them, you know. So but. One thing that I've learned is, and kind of what it got me to the place that I'm at, is how to utilize certain tool for a deficit that I have in my coaching. You know, so um, at one point, some system becomes too problematic as way too many steps to take with every athlete. So it becomes a more like a one-on-one -on -one environment, you know. So then I have to be like, you know what, we're going to have to do this on a one-on-one -on -one because it's going to take a long time. So especially for like the running, like the running stuff has to be small groups, big groups doesn't work too well. One thing that I had to learn how to manage was if I'm doing force plate analysis, how do I do with a big group? So, you know, because I was, I was spending like 10 minutes on one athlete on coaching them up. So now, again, I was a little bit over coaching with the force plate, but I was like, okay, I cannot assess 10 people if I'm doing all this. So I had to learn also how to do that very simplistic so I can start working with bigger groups, especially for assessments. So that that's huge. Yeah, you're one of the customers that actually uses this both on a high speed environment for almost a combine or baselining approach. So lots and lots of bodies uh, in an hour. And then also you do some of the deep dives. How does your coaching or how does your, I don't know, the logistics of those two different environments play out in your mind when you think about oh i gotta test a thousand people in a day or two days versus oh i'm gonna do a serious analysis on this individual who just is coming back from an acl how do you approach those two problems yeah. so if we go to and i've seen that as well a great tool for um rehab after after rehab that's been one of the best tools that i probably could have had uh at the moment but then the main thing that we do is like okay if i have somebody who's hurt hey come in 30 minutes before a session or let's pick up an extra day where it's only you and I or go go do your jumps probably the kid more likely has came to me before as I listen go do these jumps 
Let's I walk you through it. I'll spend 10 minutes doing all the testing. I'm gonna look at it at home and then I'll present the information to you of what I saw. So those are the two scenarios. Come with me so where we are in a one-on-one. But usually all I do is like uh for rehab and stuff, like like coming back from rehab, I was like, let's do all the testing. Let's see what happens while we uh once we do everything and we just gather all the data and we just present it at once. So like that, we're not looking like one by one by one, a metric by metric, like just get it all done with, and then we see what we get overall as a profile. Um, then I had to learn how to test three kids, four kids, five kids. This summer, I think the biggest group that I tested at once was 48. I think it was 48. Um, let me see. No, it was 45. It was 45. So then what I had to do is uh, I use also GPS systems. Uh, started using it this summer. So that was my next edition. I wanted to work uh, incorporating more like speed development programs and then also how to assess that. So I invested on some GPS trackings and uh, work with Mac Lloyd. So those are amazing too. So now we can create athletic profiles for movement up in the field and also the athletic performance of movement in the gym. So we're combining those and creating a profile overall for the athletes. So this summer I did a speed program. We had about, I think it was 45 kids that we had. So I only had five GPSs, which that was the, the, the hardest part. How can I assess 45 kids with five GPSs? So what I had to do is that I divided those athletes into five GPS, you know, like, so I had to get, make groups of five. So what I did is that I did like a circuit. So I did a circuit. So one will lead to another one. So pretty much I did like a mobility station, 90-90 station, very little taxing movements. So I had um, stations, five athletes per station. And then I had a mobility station. I even had a before four splits, I had a spike ball tournament. So I had two spike balls for like little uh, first to five points. So like warming them up, then we'll move into four splits on four splits. We're assessing. That's the other part too. For programs like that, you cannot do too many different assessments. It's going to take too long. So we did, uh, we did two, two CMJs, arm on waist. And we did uh, two pogo jumps. Uh, so like I think they call it the 10-5. So 10 jumps, uh, 10 jumps. And then from there, they will come to me to the GPS tracking. And then we were assessing max velocity uh, to 40 yards. And then we just get into a circle. So yeah. I'll, just, I'll, I'll just make sure everybody came through. And then if your first station was, was uh, I, I left the GPS open. So the first session, the first station, will be a force plate and then they will come to the sprinting after that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you're using the GPS in that environment, almost like laser timing. I think a lot of people think of GPS as in-game, you wear it for a full practice, but you're actually just swapping the, the pucks in and out at a given station. So when we talk about those rotation or kind of a spinning um, circuit format, that's an interesting yeah, way. Yeah, so they, and they also the number one thing that helps if you want to have a successful uh, with testing big groups, you must have them in the system already. If you don't have it in the system, I said game over. Like it cannot be done. So the number one thing I suggest is you need to have everybody who you're testing into the system already. So the flow of the session is, is much easier. Another thing that we do is that we went to actually Phillips Academy. And then we help them with their assessment as well. So now they're, oh my God, we did all the full sports, I believe. So there we go. So then, for example, at Phillips Academy, um, 
Drake uh, hit me up and asked me if I could go down and help uh, help the guys, uh, Nicole, uh, Sean, uh, with some of the testing for the fall sports. So then while we did the case, that was a little bit trickier because we had about 30 to 45 minutes per team. So that, at that sense, again, number one, you got to have everybody in the system uh, before the session. And then the one thing that we did, we actually – we were super efficient with it. We had two force plates. And then uh, the team, uh, Nicole and Sean, um, warmed up the teams. And then we divided into two groups. From those two groups, I did a little chat of one, uh, like two minutes. What am I looking for? How come we're using this technology? Because that's number one. You need to explain it in a very non-scientific way of why we're using it. You know, because again, kids will do it for the sake of doing it because everybody else does it and the coach has. But I think when you when you spend just two minutes about what's going on and why we're doing it, it might change the perception of, oh, this is lame or this is stupid. You know, like any of that, because the kids might be not feeling it, but it was like, okay, wait, maybe there's a purpose, a purpose for it. So then after that, I tell them, you know, what I'm looking for, how the device works, you know, when it blinks, jump, land soft landing and that's that or you're gonna have three tries and then we divide into two groups i had like let's say a through letter a through h alphabetical order and then they get the other crew so we did a alphabetical order half and half they came to me i think it was by first time we did it and then we just did it so then it was actually very efficient and then on that i didn't do a lot of cues you know just very simple unless the kids were like all over the place it's like hey Arms on your waist, drop quick, push up even faster, land. And then what we did also is one of the assistants, she goes to Merrimack, uh, Carson. So then she was with me. So I was I was able to see that there were a lot of kids with uh, the asymmetry was way off uh, during the breaking. So then as soon as the king come in, I will see it. It's like, can you flag this athlete? Because we had a list as well. I'll just flag this athlete. I would tell him, hey, listen, I want to talk to you at the end. Like, I saw something, but I want to ask you about it. It's like, don't worry about it. Just go. So then we got everybody said that when you brought the other kids in, it's like, hey, listen, have you had any injuries? Have you had this, 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 and that? And I think most of the kids that we talked to, they've have had underlying uh, conditions of pre-injuries that were going through stuff. So it's like, okay, just talk to your coaches because that breaking, you know, left to right is a little bit too big, more than I will personally would like. So maybe take a look at it, see what you guys can do about it. So then that also informing and then after that for them, they were like, oh my God, this is witchcraft. How did you know that? You know, because some kids also, some of them were like, they knew it was there, but they didn't think it would pop out on something like that. And it did. So at least it was an eye opener or how in depth. And that's uh, buy-in right there. You know, with those three athletes that you got like that, they buy in into the system right away. And it became competitive. So now everybody's watching, they're bash talking. Ah, let me see what you got. Like, and then, and that's also how you bring the team together. You know, everybody sees where they're at and then they can see how high they can jump. They can see what they can do. And now it brings, changes the atmosphere a little bit better. That's what we did with my program as well. I think people don't understand force plates have been around for quite a long time. But when you look at from the initial kind of, you know, foundations of dynamometry in the 18, you know, 80s to present day, how do you make it fun? And so we spend a lot of time on that. And you mentioned, it sounds like you tested a lot of people, you implemented a lot of data, um, you know, on the back end, but you were able to do it in a timely manner that more importantly helped the culture. It helped 
the environment. And that's really one of the most important things is that if you're doing testing, there's a different feel. It's not necessarily competition. They might actually, you know, be a little bit scared. Oh, how did I do on the test? Versus I'm going to give a maximum effort. And actually, good or bad isn't the number you get. It's did you give a maximal effort or not? And I think that that's super important that any kind of testing that you do be blended into your paradigm and your culture. Yeah, so that's the number one thing. Like the one thing that I don't like to and uh, my the girl, I don't like to bash. You know, between the kids and I, it's okay, but don't be, don't be putting someone down. Like that's the when I see it, it's like guys, I know you know each other, but you can have that language here. Do it on your sport. That might be the culture of the team, but like just don't not here. You know what I mean? Like I don't want you guys to for the new kid that is maybe be intimidated by that. You know, but also we do. I I do it as well. I love to get in there and be competitive as much as I can and try to like. Hey, get on my level. You know what I mean? So it's like, it would do it fun, but not to a point that we're downing. Like, you know, you don't want to bring someone down. You know, that's the number one thing that, that I, I talk with my program. All the kids are shy. They don't want to test. They don't want to do big groups. But I was like, don't worry about it. Just do what you do. And then we're done. Uh, one thing that has been huge for us is the um, thigh pool. We changed that to a belt ISO. And that's huge. That's, that's our new one rep max. You know, when somebody's back squatting, I don't longer push for like max lift. I just put people through the through the ISO uh, belt, and that has been huge and much better for me. The way to, just to see a progress, and then that's actually the way that I explain it is, um, you might be able to lift a lot of weight, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to apply that force. You just get very, you're very good at moving heavy things slow. You know, another part too is that there might be some mechanical. Um, input into that of your form that maybe might not allow you that might allow you to get that weight but doesn't mean it's efficient so then when i talk to them is like what does this mean is that this is the force that you possess this is the force that you could go on the field and that's what you could use on your favor you lifting 500 pounds might not help you but you put in 4,000, 5,000 newtons in three seconds five seconds might help you more so a good example of that is that I had an athlete. Uh, um, oh my God, I can't remember. He's at E-line, a D-line or O-line. Can't remember right now, but he put 8,000 newtons. That's a lot on the belt. That's a PR for us. But this kid, if you see him, he's uh, 260, 280. Um, you might imagine, it's like, oh, this guy can lift a house. He couldn't. He hated how weight felt on him. You know, he didn't like the feeling of of heavy lifting so he didn't want to get hurt he was super afraid of getting hurt for lifting so then what we did is now we utilize velocity-based training with this athlete so his lift were in about 400 his deadlifts were in about 400 his cleans were about like 180 but that's about it but he was moving like i think the last one it was 305 for like 0.80 <laughs> that's a lot yeah and i think that yeah. you know, people have heard me say this for years is that just from the data that I've seen and both in a practical setting, but also from a research standpoint, really, yeah, right around double body weight on a back squat, um, you start getting that conversation of diminishing returns as it relates to top end speed and power. And so our paradigm was always squat double, but then I wanna see what is your ability at a meter per second. And sometimes, you know, if you draw that curve, almost like a transmission, that meter per second only can occur at about 10% of that max. And any yeah. researcher would tell you, well, that's not good. Well, yeah, I have a pickup truck. I need a Ferrari. So we would look at what the velocity was at 60% of max and then at 30% of max. And throughout time, as we go to bend, 
regardless of my strength, you only have a certain amount of contact time to apply force. So if that force, you're you know only using 10% of your total force, if that window has passed, it's irrelevant. And so yeah. being able to bend the transmission, bend those curves, and again, yes, you need strength, but to what point? And then knowing your position, are you a high velocity athlete or are you in a position where you have to lock and engage for an extended period of time and push through to your point about the repeated strength, suddenly the four by 10 at 80 becomes a lot more indicative to your on-field success um, as it relates to performance. Yeah, so then, for example, this guy was kind of a prototype of like how to build my system for big guys like that. Because for big guys to lift heavy weights is so hard as well. You know, like someone who's 300 pounds to move 300 pounds, it takes a lot. <laughs> it's hard as well. But then what we did with these athletes were for work on form, let the weight come through, and a lot of learning how to move. Like the one number one thing in my program is I don't care how much you lift, I care how well you move. And not necessarily even with the weights. I don't care about the weights. I care about movement quality, bounding, jumping, um, sprinting, uh, pogo jumps. That's now how I, I, uh, that my, my number one assessment is that. Can you, can you bound? Can you, can you jump? How's your sprint? That's it. That can tell me a lot about the athlete and how they perform out there and how well can they produce force and how well they can change direction. So, for example, this athlete, 8,000 uh, newtons, um, CMJ, I think is about 50.50 meters. But in the, again, if you're like six, I think it was six, one, 280 pounds and you jump in a, a 50, that's good. <laughs> that Like that's really good. For those people that are in inches, what are we talking about for that? Because I know, especially in the football community, we're talking about the, you know, vertical jumps, you know, for the linemen in the mid to high 20s, for the semis in the high 20s, mid 30s, uh, and then with our DBs being closer to 40 inches. On some of those numbers that you're seeing, what are they in inches? So, for example, uh, in force plates uh, numbers, 50, in 50 centimeters will be about 19 inches. To put it into perspective as well, for example, for me, uh, my approach jump on the ver on the vert on a, a vertical will be about 34 inches, hmm. but then standing on the force plate is about 0.68, 70. So that's kind of like how I made that comparison. And the number one thing, these two you cannot compare. You cannot compare force plate data to like reach uh, vertical. Those are two different techniques, two different way of testing. So those are those those are the you can you only gotta compare apples to apples. You cannot compare a system where you reach overhead where you might have uh, more extension um, and then the way that the force plates. Uh, so the kids are very good at that and then we don't compare them because they might be from programs, especially football, they come to tryouts. It's like, don't compare them, just know they're there. You know, like if you got a vertical here, don't come here thinking that's bad. If you do mind, don't think that you're underperform, just know that that's it. But because now we can, we have a lot of data that we can, we're able to see, well, if you have a CMJ, if your pogo jump is that now we're doing a lot of correlation from jumping momentum to sprint momentum. So if we can improve uh, jumping momentum of an athlete on a CMJ, uh, now there's the correlation. I run it for my program is 0.90 something um, of, uh, of if you improve the jumping momentum, that will improve uh, sprinting momentum. Yeah. And I think that you bring up an important point of education and, you know, I would have individuals that would come to me. I have a 40 inch vertical jump on a yellow mat and then on the vertex, it might be 36. And then as you mentioned with force plates, 
And I think even people need to know, jumping with your hands on your hip versus using your arms on arm swing, those are two completely different families of movement because promoting yeah, and coordination. So teaching your athletes that just as you would do for the bench press, hey, I want you at this range, you would teach them different for an incline or you would teach them different for a decline, but all of them have significance. So any tool or any number that you give an athlete before you, you start spitting numbers at them, give them context. Oh no, like if I have anything that I'm on, my content is huge. Like I really try to educate the kids to a point the one of like these two group of girls that I work with, they actually wanted to do their physics project based on the force plates, which it was called, it was like a little drop jump. Um, what happens when you start raising the height of the drop jump? What happens to your body? What happens with the numbers and all this stuff? So they did that. And that's how much I try to like teach them about, about what happens in there. The other part too, kids are graphic as well. Like they like to see. So another thing that I do is that I show them the figure because it's also a pardon. Pardon, like certain parties leave clues as well as data. You know, certain movement parties are going to leave clues. And then what we start seeing is if you do uh, arm swing, if you go more like a little spike, then back down, then that means that you really didn't break. And then you also weren't being efficient with your arm swing. Now, if you go and start seeing the double, the M, now, now you can see the arm swing, how well you develop. And sometimes you have a guy, you go flat, spike down, and then the M. So then now the timing of the arms wasn't efficient when you drop and then when you swing. So what happened is you drop, as you drop the arm swing back. So you actually cleared it downward and upward and uh, upward force. So when those arms swing back, the force goes up again. And then you go back up. So also how to time the arms down and up to be more efficient with it. And you can see the breaking, minimizing, because when you come down, your arms go up. That's actually holding you on the ground. So we talk a lot about it. And in a simple cues, like, look at, you got the M or you didn't get the M. If you didn't get the M, make it better. Same thing on the, and usually the, the force time curve, you could see it with uh, beginner athletes and more experienced athlete. The beginner athlete is going to look like this during the breaking phase to propulsive. When the more experienced athlete is boom, is a double, is either is either a step up, a quick step up, or a sharp to down. So very hard break into propulsive and then the push-up. So now you can see how well these athletes just on day one, how well can they manage their body. And some of them it looks like a mountain, it's like, okay, this kid got a lot of work to do. You know, yeah. so and you said though the kids are very visual. They'll look at it and almost like a video game, they'll start coaching themselves and start playing around. And I always encourage those environments where they can sit and play, try to figure it out themselves. Um, because again, they're not gonna get hurt on it. Um, but again, mm -hmm. it's teach them what to do. And I think your point here on the, oh, if I can get the momentum up, that goes over to my sprint mechanics. I'm seeing a lot of that as well. Asking an individual to get stronger takes time, but like for what? But I know that if I get my momentum to increase, I can then expect speed. Speed lets me get to the ball first okay, suddenly now I'm bought into the training that has surrounded this paradigm. So I think that's super helpful. Yeah, the other part too is that we have to have those tough conversations in a way when, you know, the kids are assessing, we see that their body weight is going up after every jump and then, you know, 5, 10%, 2%, 3%. But then we can see it's like, okay, this guy, and it doesn't, that's me thinking, it's like, all right, this guy is 10% of his body weight, but his jumping momentum is actually worse. It's like, okay. Hey, try that again. It might be that he moved, you know, the quiet phase wasn't good, 
Now he did it again, and now he had a better performance. So now he went up 10%, like 3% body weight is going up, but the jumping momentum also went up. So that's a very good indicator that, yes, maybe this kid might be gaining weight, but might not be a weight where we don't want it or on a weight that we don't want it. It's a way that if this guy is earning, is going up by 5%, 10% of body weight, but his jumping momentum is going up, he more likely be muscle quality. He might be getting stronger, therefore he might be acquiring more muscle mass. Or if we see that the uh, body weight is going up a little too much and performance staying steady, then we gotta have those conversations. It's like, hey, how's your diet? Um, what you doing? Cause like it seems that you're gaining weight, but your performance is not improving. So let's let's talk. And then it's actually, I mean, that's how that's how much we'll be able to talk and relate with the athletes. That is not like we're body shaming them. But we're making them aware that we know that something is up. They broke up with the boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, a lot of different aspects. Maybe in the opposite, we've had people, maybe they got a boyfriend, they got a girlfriend. Now they're going out to each a little bit more often during the week, little stuff like that, more parties. So it's like, okay, so hey, just so you know, this is what's happening. Make sure that your performance in here has to double up just so we don't get in like, you know, slow down down the road. So yeah, just awareness. You can get ahead of all that stuff before it becomes, like you said, body shaming or taboo. Oh, absolutely. You're going to see it. And I would always tell athletes, I don't care what you do out of here. Um, It's your choice. I hope I motivate you to make good choices. But we would look a lot at power. To your point, if you gain five pounds and it's muscle, power goes up. Well, if you gain five pounds and power goes down, and and again, that's just at the high level, all those other smaller metrics that kind of go into that subsystem, you can catch it. And so it's a great way to use performance as a driver and nutrition rather than just the image stuff. But I mean, I could talk to you all day long. I have so many more questions I want to talk to you. We'll have to come by and swing, uh, swing by and visit you at your facility. But any of the coaches that are listening that, you know, want to ask more questions or want to reach out, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Honestly, uh, Instagram, uh, katanaperformance.com. Um, or Jose at katanaperformance.com is the simplest way. I'm very active on my social media. So that's a very simple way to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Again, we'll be in touch soon. Have a great rest of your fall and we'll talk to you later. Thank you, man. I appreciate it.